Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. Today, we're going to talk about the umbilical cord, delayed cord clamping, cord blood banking, nuchal cord. What is it? Is it a concern? And we're speaking with Dr. Mark Sloan. Dr. Mark Sloan has been a pediatrician for more than 30 years. Trained at the University of Michigan, he practiced with Kaiser Permanente in Sacramento and Santa Rosa, California from 1982 to 2014, where he attended more than 2,500 births. He is an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Community and Family Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where he teaches reflective and advocacy writing to family medicine residents. He also teaches pediatrics and writing to Santa Rosa Family Medicine Residency. In 2015, Mark earned a master's in public health degree with a concentration in maternal child health from the University of Minnesota. Mark is also a writer. His book, Birthday, a Pediatrician Explores the Science, the History, and the Wonder of Childbirth, was praised by the Washington Post, the Journal of Midwifery and Women's Health, the New England Journal of Medicine, and the International Journal of Childbirth Education, among many other publications, and was a 2010 Northern California Book Awards finalist. Translated into Japanese as Baby Science, Birthday earned a Top 10 Science Book of 2010 by the Japan Economics Times. Mark lives in Santa Rosa with Elizabeth, his wife of 31 years, and they have two grown children. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So I'm so glad to have you here tonight. Thank you so much. Now, should I call you Mark or Dr. Sloan? What do you prefer? 
Mark is fine. Okay, keep it casual. <laughs> so you've been a pediatrician for many, many years. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to pediatrics? Well, I've my approach to pediatrics, pediatrics has evolved over the years. I mean, I started out, out of training, being trained to take care of a lot of very sick kids. And over the course of being in primary care for 30-plus years, I came to realize that within broad limits, uh, most kids are going to end up fine. You know, They're going to grow well. The parents are concerned about them. They care about them. They want the best for them. And so my approach over the years sort of shifted towards, well, how do I help people do what they want? How do I help them have their healthy child they're, they're envisioning? And sometimes that involves some you know, adaptation of the regulations and rules and recommendations of, of uh, some organizations. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's more over time I've found that I don't, it didn't have to be quite as rigid and, and uh, uh, dogmatic as I was when I was 30 years younger than I am now. <laughs> so. I guess that's experience gives you just hindsight of how you feel you should practice best. Yes, it's a, it's a great teacher when you do things wrong for a while. So. <laughs> yeah, so what drew you to exploring delayed cord clamping? Because I know you've written several articles. Well, I've written about it, and it's been picked up by several different articles. Mm-hmm. Well, it was actually in the course of writing my book, which is uh, titled Birthday. Uh, a pediatrician explores the science, the history, and the wonder of childbirth. And that came out in 2009, and I was, I was, when I was researching that, I, I stumbled upon several things that I was surprised went uh, against what I'd been taught. And one of the things about cord clamping I was taught was that, you know, you just got that out of the way. You did the cord clamping, and you were done with it, and there you go. Um, but combining with that was a concern I had about iron deficiency, and then finding out that, uh, and we can talk about that in more depth, with how early cord clamping actually promotes iron deficiency in kids, which can have uh, adverse consequences for their neurodevelopment. So it's a combination of doing a lot of research about birth at the time and then having some concerns about all the uh, anemia I was seeing in my practice and, and kind of coupling those two things together. Interesting. Okay, so can you explain what is the what is delayed cord clamping and then what are the benefits of it? Well, start with some definitions. I mean, cord clamping is pretty obvious. That is applying a clamp or in the old days and in a lot of cultures still around the world is a string or a rope of some kind tied to cut off the blood supply from the placenta to the newborn and on en route to cutting the cord and uh, separating the mother from the baby. Now, the definitions of early versus delayed clamping are kind of fluid, but basically if, if you've been to deliveries, you know that if somebody's practicing early clamping, they're just getting it done as quick as they can. And it's usually within 30 seconds, so it, it doesn't take very long for somebody to do that. Um, delayed cord clamping implies that you're waiting. Now, how long you're waiting is, is uh, varies a lot depending on the study you're looking at. But in, in old days, they would wait basically just until the cord stopped clamping, or excuse me, the cord stopped pulsating, and that was about, you know, usually three to five minutes in that range. Um, but by definition now, anything more than a minute is considered a delayed cord clamping, and um, you, most of the studies you look at, they usually are looking at two to three minutes. And what are some of the benefits for someone to ask their care provider to do delayed cord clamping? Well, there are two major areas of benefit. The first is in uh, neonatal transition or the the way a baby has to shift from being a fetus in an all-liquid environment into a newborn in an all-air environment and the blood flow that has to change and all the the circulatory things that have to happen. Um, Before you start labor... um, half the baby's blood supply is in the placenta, half the fetus's blood supply is in the placenta, it's not in the baby. 
um, but it's circulating all the time. And then as labor starts, the process begins where the um, uterus contracts and presses, or, you know, uh, squeezes the placenta and forces more and more of that blood, that balance starts to shift into the fetus and out of the placenta. So there's half your, so before labor, there's half your blood is in the placenta. By the time the baby's born, there's still about 25 or 30% of the baby's, the newborn's blood supply is still in the placenta. And so the, the process of transferring that blood from the placenta to the baby goes on until the cord stops pulsing, and that's your two or three minutes out. Mm-hmm. So the amount of blood that's in the placenta is exactly the amount of blood that's needed to inflate the lungs in the newborn so that they can start breathing oxygen, to send blood to the kidneys and liver and other organs that were just kind of snoozing through pregnancy. And so the... Um, so if you cut that short, it makes it more difficult for a baby to make that transition from a fetus to a newborn. And sometimes that can result in respiratory difficulties and other problems right at, right at birth. So that's one category. The, the one, one part of it is the neonatal transition. The other is anemia, which we started to touch on. Um, if you leave a third of a baby's blood supply in the placenta at birth when you cut the cord, you've now cheated them out of about three to six months worth of iron that is in that blood. And there are many, many um, neurodevelopmental tasks that have to happen in the first few months that require a lot of iron. Uh, you're making about 700 new neural connections every second as a newborn, and that, a lot of that requires iron. So what we're doing is we're sort of, of guaranteeing kids are going to be somewhat iron deficient, uh, or quite a few kids are going to be iron deficient if we do that. And, and we're, we know that iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia have a lot of adverse effects on kids' neurodevelopment. But even just that, just that little bit of three ounces of, of blood that didn't get to the baby can make a difference in terms of development overall. In what sense? So, what what are the detriments if they don't have it? Can you go? What what kind of damage were you saying might happen? Well, it's subtle. It's it's uh, there was a study from Sweden just a couple of years ago, I think, uh, where they looked at kids who they they basically randomized children. Half the group got. Uh, delayed cord clamping, half the group got early cord clamping. And then they followed them, I think, to four or five years of age. The report was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. But they showed that the kids in the um, early cord clamping, uh, well, excuse me, the kids in the delayed cord clamping group were more likely to have higher scores in terms of fine motor and social emotional uh, testing. It was subtle, but it, it was there, it was real. And we don't know really, you know, how, how when you talk about large numbers of kids, how does that affect them overall? We don't know. And if you're already in a, in a culture or a, a community where iron deficiency is pretty prevalent for children in general, you're starting behind the eight ball and you're staying there because, you know, whatever the reason that the iron deficiency is so common in a population, it's, this is certainly not going to help to start out in the hole with your iron. So if a child is iron deficient, will breastfeeding help remedy that? Because I know it's, you know, iron deficient often... When my pregnant students are iron deficient, they take a supplement. Can newborns take an iron supplement? Yeah, you can give kids iron supplements at birth, and that's, uh, I think, it's probably some advice is going to be coming out that that's what we should be doing with babies in general. Uh, if not at birth, at least starting about six months to make sure that the kids don't become iron deficiency as they become toddlers and preschoolers. Um, but the... Um, Breastfeeding by itself isn't going to remedy it because breast, although there's iron in breast milk, it's, there's a relatively low amount. It's very well absorbed, but it's not enough to repair what you didn't get. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason the breast milk isn't overflowing with iron is because a mother has her own needs after birth, you know, with blood loss and things. She has to recreate her own blood. So I think nature expected that you were going to get that iron supply from the, from the placental transfer with delayed clamping. 
and we're cutting that short by uh, uh, with the early clamping. I'm going to totally throw out something we hadn't even talked about, but one of the podcasts I recently did was about placental encapsulation. And one of the benefits the woman was saying who did this, the placenta medicine, was that it's pretty high in iron. Now, would that be something that could help support more iron in the breast milk? I don't know if you even know this. I'm just kind of trying to connect some of the dots in my mind. You know, so if breast milk doesn't have a lot, would taking the placenta help? I don't think there's any studies to tell you for sure whether that would work or not. Um, it would help with iron, but I, I am not familiar with that. How long a time over? How long a time are you giving the? the oh, I'm sorry. The mother is taking the mother's the, taking the placenta. Oh, no, that probably would not make that much difference. Yeah. Okay. Just wondering. I was just kind of connecting yeah. some of the thoughts of from one conversation to another. So what were some of the reasons that it became customary to clamp the cord right after birth? Um, well, the the big change came in the middle of the 20th century, but the first reference to early cord clamping is from the 1600s, actually, in England. And that's about the time that uh, male midwives started to take over a lot of the, at least the more wealthy folks there, birthing suites. Uh, and along with them came the flat on the back birthing and the forceps and then early cord clamping. It was just getting, like I said earlier, just getting the job done and getting the, um, getting, you know, the, the baby delivered and out of there. Um, but the big push came in the middle of the 20th century, usually around 1960, I think is the date people cite. And that's when it was thought that the, if you did three things at, at the time of birth and to help prevent postpartum hemorrhage, if you cut the cord early and you put some traction on the cord, so you pulled on it a little bit, and at the same time you gave the mother a dose of a medicine like Pitocin to help hasten the delivery of the placenta, mm -hmm. that that would help to prevent postpartum hemorrhage. And it turned out, it was shown, it, uh, it took a long time, but it was shown early cord clamping had nothing to do with postpartum hemorrhage. But by that time, it was so entrenched in OB toolboxes everywhere that it was just, I mean, when I started my training, I never gave it any thought. That's just what you did. And, and uh, I, it, it took a long time for people to realize that this might actually be detrimental to babies, not just a neutral thing to do, but it might actually harm them. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So it's just kind of left over. You know, it's been proven that it doesn't actually benefit babies. It's just kind of like a leftover protocol that hasn't really been questioned, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's just become a habit that's hard for people to break. But it, it is, it is it's an odd thing in medicine because it's not that you're talking about something. I mean, you're, you're talking about hanging on to an intervention, which is early cord clamping. That doesn't do any, that's been shown to not benefit either the mother or the baby at all and may, in fact, be harming the baby. So in other words, if you're going to keep doing early cord clamping with the way the evidence is, then basically you're saying, well, I'm not going to give up a useless useless procedure unless I have a darn good reason for doing it. 
So it's it's kind of an odd thing to, to see, but yeah, it's, it's it's habit. But again, switching from early cord clamping to delayed cord clamping is not like switching how you transplant hearts. I mean, you don't have to you don't have to retrain everyone. You don't have to get a whole new set of uh, equipment. You're basically just waiting, and there's lots of things you can do while you wait for that minute or two. So, so I, I honestly I don't understand the, the reluctance of some providers to not uh, to not switch to delayed clamping. Yeah, it's really not a tremendous amount of time. I've had some students say their care providers prefer to milk the cord instead of waiting for it to stop pulsing on its own and then clamping. What are your have you heard of that, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, well, cord milking is is if the OB or the midwife grabs the cord as close to the placenta as possible and then starts to strip, you know, squeeze the cord and strip the blood towards the baby that way. And what you're doing then is emptying the blood that's in the, the uh, cord, that particular dose of blood, into the baby very quickly. Uh, studies have shown that's about halfway between early clamping and, and delayed clamping. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not equivalent to delayed clamping. Yeah, because you're not getting the, the placenta, right? Pardon me? Because then you're not getting the blood that's in the placenta. You're, you're getting, you're squeezing what's what's that moment in the cord, but then it's going to refill again from the placenta. Right. So you can accomplish the same thing by waiting. You, know, you, can, you can accomplish better uh, outcomes by waiting. So I don't. If you're really in a hurry, I guess you could stripping the cord is better than nothing. But it's it's better than early cord clamping. Let's put it that way. All right. But it's, uh, meeting in it's the hard. Yeah, as a routine practice, it's kind of hard to justify if you're going to might as well just wait a minute and be done with it. Would there be any circumstances where it's not advisable to have delayed cord clamping? No, well, there are certain resuscitation scenarios where it might be, you know, if you got a really sick baby, it might be better to get the baby out of there. But, but the thing you have to think, when we, you know, I did, you know, I did a lot of neonatal intensive care unit work over the years, and uh, one of the first things we would do when we had a very sick baby is to get them over to the NICU, and then they're usually going to need a bolus of fluid. They're going to need some IV fluids and probably a blood transfusion. And here we are cutting off their blood supply from their own blood supply from the placenta in order to give them somebody else's blood when they go to the nursery. So that one is another that's it's kind of a uh, – when we really sat and thought about it, it made more sense. You can always give a baby oxygen during resuscitation, but let them get the blood they need because that's what they need um, you know, to, to keep their blood pressure up and to fight whatever's going on. So I think more and more they're starting to develop uh, tables that allow a baby to – you know, be resuscitated, whatever the, the pediatrician has to do while the baby's still attached to the cord and the, and the placenta hasn't yet delivered. So it's, it's it's a little tight area to work in, which, you know, as the mother's giving birth, which is why I think a lot of people have been leery of doing it. But I think the best thing is to let the let that transfusion happen. They, they have shown big, uh, big benefits to preemies when, you know, sick premature babies do very good, very well with uh, delayed clamping. And uh, so... But it is, it flies in the face of everything I was taught when I started out. So there really aren't too many circumstances. I'm just trying to think back. I know when my son was born, it was a very long pushing stage and there was meconium. And she actually did clamp him pretty quickly. And I was, I always wondered if it's because of the meconium and she wanted to try to suction some of it out. Right. If you're not set up to be able to suction the meconium on the perineum, you know, right, right as the birth is happening, then you're better off clamping and sending the baby over to the resuscitation table where a pediatrician has more room to work. Yeah, but they have to get resuscitated. <laughs> yeah, that, that probably what was going on. They're trying to get the meconium before the baby had a chance to inhale it. Yeah. Um, but again, that is, uh, you know, as they refine these tables and things they can do for resuscitation, it, it seems more like that you'd be able to do that at the perineum rather than um, 
rather than uh, you know having to take the baby away so quickly. But again, I wouldn't second guess somebody who's doing that myself because I've been in that situation where you, sometimes you just got to run. Yeah. Um, but I was so, but that's in, in in healthy births. I can't think of any reason why you wouldn't why you couldn't do it. Well, I've had some students that seem pretty torn between delayed cord clamping and then cord banking. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of your thoughts on that? They're they're compatible in that if you when if you wait one minute after the baby's born, you've got about ninety percent of that transfusion happening from the placenta into the into the baby. You know, the, the baby's blood supply is coming in pretty well, and there's still enough left to do cord clamping now. The, or cord banking now. The whole issue of cord banking is another uh, issue <laughs> because um, there's the issue of private cord banks that really are, are trying to, to sell the idea of, uh, you know, cord banking be what you need to do to protect your baby is, is from cancer and things later on. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of problems with that. And that, first of all, the, the chances of ever needing that blood have been estimated somewhere between one in 2000 and one in 200,000. So that means that virtually all the samples that are collecting there are probably never going to be used. And they could have been sent to a public bank, just like a, just like blood transfusion where people donate blood. If you donate that, if you're going to do that, if you donate it to a public bank, it's available for your kid and everybody else's kid <clears throat> if they need it later on. But there's a couple other problems. With that. I don't know how much depth you want to go into oh, with yeah. that. But it, it's, Let, I've had people ask me, and it's a topic I tend not to think too much. I haven't really jumped into it. So let's make this all about the umbilical cords. Let's talk about some, because you know, we're going to talk about new cords soon. So yeah, let's talk about some cord banking. Let's open it up. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. It's, uh, it's a different, I mean, if you think of it, everybody's familiar with blood banks, you know, where you go to donate blood. So if you were to donate blood for your own use in case you need it later, you're probably not going to need it later. If you do, it's, you know, it, it may go bad by the time you, you actually needed it. And if you'd put it into a, a, a public blood bank, or, you know, a blood bank that's available to everybody, then when your disasters happen, when your accidents happen, people have blood available to them. And it's really analogous to what goes on with cord blood banking. If you do it, and again, this is a decision that parents need to make for themselves, and I'm not, I don't want to come off as being totally negative about it. But I do think that, that people should think about it. If they want to donate cord blood, thinking about donating to a public bank rather than to trying to hold on to it privately. The other thing, about three quarters, half to three quarters of the units of blood that are stored are not, are going to be unusable at the time you need them. They're, for technical reasons, they're just not. There may not be enough stem cells in it. They may not. They may just not be viable anymore. So there's problems with it. It's not guaranteed that if you donate this blood, it's going to be exactly what you need when your child is is older. Uh, the other thing is, unless you have some sort of well, if your child had an inherited disorder of some kind, and that's why you were saving the blood bank, they probably wouldn't use those cells anyway because genetically that blood has the same problem that you're trying to get rid of. So, um, and then once a, ch- once a child reaches about 90 pounds of weight, there's no longer enough in there to treat with one round of umbilical cord, your own umbilical cord uh, blood you banked. And it's going to require some um, cord blood from the public bank along with it. So, so it's really, a, it's a fairly limited use for, you know, personal private blood banking. It's also expensive and it's probably, well, it's a few thousand dollars to get all this done, plus whatever the price is every year, you know, to keep it going. So I, you know, again, that's that's me. I think it's public banking is a better way to go, and I'm probably going to get a lot of kind of hate mail, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's totally fine. I just think it's important to hear because I've had kind of that's been my take on it, but not as a medical professional. When I say it, I feel like people don't necessarily 
hear what I'm saying. So I'm glad to hear your thoughts on it because we are quite aligned with that. Yeah, another way to look at this where the the, uh, logic kind of fails is you're you're hanging out of these stem cells in case your child ever needs them. But when your child needs them is now. So I'd rather have you give the stem cells by virtue of delayed cord clamping, give the stem cells to the child rather than set aside this bunch of stem cells that maybe they're going to need later on. But So I think, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me that you'd save the very thing that your baby needs for neurodevelopment and everything else at birth for later use for some disease that probably you're never going to, you're never going to need. That's a great argument to not cord bank. And again, I'm probably at the hate mail now too, but I, I looking at it as like every parent wants the best for their child. And if you know, if science has shown getting the cord blood when they're born is a definite, as opposed to hold on for, for a maybe possibility, it just seems logical. So I like that. Well, idea. The most common one you hear about is leukemia. What if my child gets leukemia? Well, first of all, most, I mean, childhood leukemia is very treatable now. Almost all cases, not, I shouldn't say almost all cases, but 90% plus of the kids are curable, but they're curable with conventional chemotherapy. They don't need, they never need that kind of uh, you know, stem cell transplant. So it's, again, it, it, it's really, there's a, I forget where it is now, I apologize, I can get that information to you, but there's a checklist of things people should be asking their blood bank, you know, their umbilical cord bank. Uh, about how this is going to be used and, and you know, what have they even used these before? Because many of these banks have either have never had to release them or have released very few of them. Really? Uh, because, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to switch subjects a little. So I years ago, I wrote a blog about Nucocord and... <laughs> I got, I still receive, I've had well over a hundred comments about this. And I found one of my friends that is a midwife out in Portland. She sent me an article that um, a doctor wrote about that the nuchal cord doesn't actually strangle the baby because they're not actually breathing air yet through their lungs. And when I posted that, and again, it seemed like it it made sense because he was really coming at it, explaining the cord I can't tell you how many comments I've had that have been very um, strongly opinionated about the whole nuchal cord. So can you, and my daughter, oddly, my, my daughter was born with a nuchal cord and the midwife essentially kind of somersaulted her out of it and she was totally fine. So can you talk a little bit about um, the, what is a nuchal cord? Um, what would a care provider do in the case of a nuchal cord? I guess the dangers of it. So we're going to totally shift umbilical cord discussion now. Well, I think first of all, you should be thankful you had the midwife you did because that's what that's the maneuver you want to do to to help a child with a nuchal cord. Uh, nuchal cords, uh, first of all, nuchal just means neck and it refers to the neck. So, and and some people get that confused with prolapsed umbilical cords, where the where the umbilical cord is coming down the birth canal either ahead of or next to the baby, and that's very dangerous. That's mm-hmm. different. Nuchal cord is when it's wrapped around the neck either loosely or tightly. For reasons we don't know exactly, it happens more in boys more than girls. Uh, it's uh, it, more active pregnancies tend to end up more likely with the nuchal cord. It just gives the baby more time to get tangled up in the in the cord. Um, but when you realize that, that, depending on the study you're looking at, as many as a third of, of births may have nuchal cords associated with them, it almost comes down to that this is probably a normal variant. You know? I mean, this is something that we see in birth all the time. And then because it's so common, it gets associated with bad things. You know, so oh, look, well, you know, I had to put the cord around the neck. If that was me, I'd be choking. So therefore it must be choking my baby. There are uh, several studies. I was just looking at this before we talked. There's a couple, there's a big one from Utah. Um, they looked at almost a quarter million kids, you know, births. 
and found no real differences between kids who had nuchal cords and kids who did not in terms of outcomes like, uh, you know, I mean, serious outcomes. Maybe you have a little bit of a problem with uh, FR scores maybe a little bit lower, but in terms of actual damage, you're hard-pressed to find that. There's another study from Turkey. I mean, they find the same things. So one of the reasons it gets associated so much is that when bad things happen at a birth, people remember that nuchal cord. Oh, yeah, it was the nuchal cord. That's where this all started. And it's similar to uh, how, you know, even when I started back in the 70s, there was, uh, uh, it was assumed that any case of cerebral palsy was a result of a botched delivery. You know, the obstetrician did something wrong, and that's why my baby has cerebral palsy. Well, now we know that a lot of the time, the damage happened well before birth. You know, the baby had a stroke in utero or something that weakened them. And as you know, a fetus has to participate in the birth, has to help push to get out. But if the baby's weak, then you're going to have a difficult delivery. So that makes it look like the cerebral palsy came from the difficult delivery, but actually the difficult delivery was the result of the thing that caused the cerebral palsy. Well, it, it's similar with nuchal cords. You know, if you're going to see a third of babies with nuchal cords and this baby had a bad outcome, ended up being very sick in the nursery, and we all remember that nuchal cord, it gets guilt by association, really. But it's, there's, now this ties into the um, delayed cord clamping a little bit, because even if a baby does have a tight enough nuchal cord, <clears throat> excuse me, that it, uh, cuts down the blood flow to the baby, and as a result, then you have uh, you know, a baby who's got too much acid in the blood or something at birth. If you let the baby do have the delayed cord clamping, that allows the, the placental circulation time to straighten things out, to fix the acid problems, to get the oxygen level back up again and stuff. So there's no... So by cutting the umbilical cord, or the, uh, yeah, the, the nuchal cord, you may actually be making things worse doing that than if you just left it alone. But it's another one of these techniques that's been around forever, and people just get used to doing it. Um, but I think you know the, the maneuver you talk about, the somersault maneuver, is really, if you can do it, it's the best way to do it. It's just, I mean, you look it up on uh, Google or YouTube, you'll see it's kind of nifty how it works. You know, they just literally, so either, depending on the angle, either uh, somersault or they limbo, one of the two, but they... Yeah, but, my uh, said she's like she literally just somersaulted her out because <laughs> obviously I couldn't see it really. Um, but it was interesting. I had this gut feeling that maybe she had a, my daughter had a nuchal cord, and I, th- I think maybe I felt guilty because I got so much hate mail and comments on this particular article. But the, most of the comments, and tell me if there's some validity to this, that they were saying their baby died in utero because of the nuchal cord. Have you heard? What are your thoughts on that? Um. Okay, I you know I don't know, but I, it's hard to comment on a specific case. But it, I'd be hard pressed to figure out how that would happen. Okay. Um, because you know the, the the tension on the cord usually happens when the baby uh, starts down the birth canal. Now there's a, there's a there's a knot in the cord that's different. True knot in the cord. A baby can actually get so tangled up they actually tie a knot in their cord, and that can be fatal in utero. You know, and that can lead to sudden need for a C-section or something. So maybe that's what they're thinking of. But but the nuchal cord, per se, I don't think is going to – you know, you look at these studies, there's just no difference in outcomes of these things. That's so maybe that's what – again, I don't know that's a tragedy. I wouldn't try to talk somebody out of what they oh, were told. Never try, yeah. I just wanted yeah, to understand I, because I've had many students concerned about it. Um, I actually had a student one time afraid to put her arms over her head because she thought the upward reach is going to create an upward pull on the – cord and strangle her baby so again i'm Here's the, yeah that's exactly what the problem is all your yoga students are probably athletic women right Many. Women. the problem is they're athletic so their babies are going to be athletic so they're tumbling around in utero and they're getting themselves tangled up in their cords they're getting the nuchal cords 
the best way for the for a mom who's athletic enough to be doing yoga, or at least you know, is physically active enough, would have been for her to have been born a couch potato, <laughs> because then her child would probably. Be, so the more active a fetus, the more likely they are to get tangled up. And athletic people tend to have more a- athletic fetuses. So they they that's so that's a roundabout way of saying I would not worry about causing a a a, a nuchal cord in you know in a child. It's it's going to happen in a bunch of pregnancies and it happens often enough that it's probably just it's a variation of normal. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, because I read about a third of uh, births are have a nuchal cord. So that's a lot. So if a third are there and babies are turning out fine, then we should probably take some of the concern away well again it, it, if you look at studies they, they've looked at this and they can't find any differences between the nuchal cord kids and the no nuchal cord kids in terms of bad outcomes so just it's just not there yeah um so i think if, if nothing else out of this talk we're having if it just got people to not worry too much about the nuchal cord um and and again and think of the guilt by association thing is that you know if something happens commonly and then something bad happens, we're going to blame the thing that happens commonly that may have caused it. But the nuchal cord is just kind of along for the ride. It's not really causing the problem. Okay. And I would be real careful with parents, with the folks thinking about this, to not confuse prolapsed umbilical cords and true knots in the umbilical cord with the nuchal cord, which just means it's looped around the neck. Right. Yeah, I've actually uh, seen cords born with um, babies born with a knot. And it must have been a loose knot because the baby was born well, fine. Yeah, then you're, that's always scary when you see that finally. We realize, I mean, you know, the parent doesn't realize how lucky they are, but we realize it, is that probably this child was very active. And what causes the cord to lengthen is tugging on the cord, basically, the, the fetus moving around, and that causes the cord to lengthen. It makes it easier for you to get a knot in the cord, but it also makes it easier to have a long enough cord that by the time the baby, the baby will be born before the knot got tight enough to really cause any trouble. Yeah, that is scary when that happens. So this is good. I'm glad that you had an opportunity just to kind of demystify some of these ideas. Just because, you know, pregnancy in itself has so many mysteries and concerns that if we can take some of the concern away about something that doesn't need concern, I think we're, we're doing a good job there. So I'm glad yeah. that you explained that well. One thing I learned from all the deliveries I've been to in my career is how tough babies are and how resilient they are. And so the things that would clobber any of us as adults or they kind of take in stride so it's uh it's it's an, it really is a remarkable thing to see a baby make that transition from a fetus to a newborn and they really they just you know they look all beat up they got their cone heads and they're all purple and they're fine and then, <laughs> i wouldn't be and then they're cute very soon after the cone head goes away <laughs> well I, yeah. take the picture. <laughs> well i appreciate you taking the time to talk with me are there any last minute um piece of advice or just things you want our students to hear the community to hear about whether it be the delayed cord clamping or how to talk to their provider about delayed actually let me ask that super quickly so if um a student or a woman wants to have delayed cord clamping but her care provider it's not really how they practice do you have any ideas of how they can try to meet in the middle and and advocate for themselves well i think it's a matter of 
probably early on in pregnancy, you, you, when you first find out you're pregnant, it'd be a good idea to get an idea with the provider you're first meeting. Especially if it's your first baby, you don't know you don't have a relationship with that person necessarily. And if it's really something you feel strongly about and they're not going to do it, you may, I mean, really the only thing that's going to change the cord clamping practices in the country, I think, is people voting with their feet. I mean, basically just not going to people who are not going to do that. Um, if you already have an established relationship with a provider, I think if you talk to them, I, I just, I really find it hard to believe that, that if someone said to me, could you just wait a minute after the baby's born so that we can get, the, that they would have a hard time with that. But there are people who, who do. And I think then it's a matter of you probably don't have a very good relationship with that person. So, you know, you might want to consider talking to one of their partners or talking to someone else. Um, because I just, there is no, there's no justification for doing early clamping anymore. It's funny. I've, I've done, I think now at 25 interviews and more than half, it comes back to carefully choosing your care provider and making sure that what's important to you is how the care provider is going to support them. It just seems like that is the first step in assuring the best you can that the mom's going to have the birth that she wants. And you really, you want to set out early on and decide what's important to you. Cause there's certain things that you don't care that much. No, you know, there, every, every woman has things she cares greatly about and others, then yeah, it's okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that you, you want to develop a, a you know, a, a caring relationship, a, a, you know, a relationship you can trust with your OB provider. So meeting early on, it's the same thing people go through choosing, choosing a pediatrician. I just tell them, look, first of all, talk to your friends who, who they like, you know, if, if they're your friends and they like this pediatrician, odds are you're probably going to think they're okay at least, but then meeting for a prenatal visit, you know, to talk it over with, how, how does he feel about vaccines? How does he feel about antibiotics? How does he feel about whatever? And just kind of feeling out the, the, um, you know, the practice style of that person, just seeing if you click. The same thing is true with, uh, you know, obviously with a prenatal provider and an OB provider. And then a lot of times the problem is you, the person you have bonded with is not the person who's there when you have your baby because of shifts and things. So, so that's why you want to get an idea of a practice, what their, what their philosophy is on this kind of stuff rather than maybe just an individual. Um, but it's, yeah, the last thing you want to do is get in battles right at the end there. So even as you're coming into labor, I would make it clear, you know, probably the people who are best to let know about that is the nurses because they're the ones who are really going to, to remind the OB or remind the midwife. Most midwives don't need reminding about that, but uh, that this is important to you. And same with cord blood clamping, uh, banking, if you're going to do that, you best let people know ahead of time that you're going to, that you want to do that rather than just kind of have it come up as you're about to have a baby. Cause as then, you're pushing, don't forget about the cord banking. <laughs> it's really late by then if they're not prepared for it. So I hope that's kind of a long-winded answer, but I think it's the same way you, you pick anybody who's going to take care of your health or your child's health is you just got to feel comfortable with them and philosophically in sync and, um, and not because I, I see it so often that someone comes with a list to the labor and delivery and they haven't thrashed these things out already with, uh, not thrashed, but I mean, they haven't worked it out with the, the, the care provider in terms of how are these things going to be handled? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remember once a mother having a big, you know, insisting that she was not going to have an enema and labor and delivery. And the nurse looked at her and said, we haven't done that in 10 years, <laughs> but she was that big thing. She'd never t- talked to anybody ahead of time about it. And it could have avoided a lot of anxiety for her. Um, so, so, I, you know, it's, that's kind of it. You got to just talk and communicate. That's the important part. Wonderful. And I do want to compliment all your work you're doing with yoga. Cause I think that's a wonderful thing for pregnant women. Thank and you. I think, um, uh, 
you know, and you're a doula as well, is it? Right? Yeah, I don't practice as much anymore because my kids are pretty small, um, and yeah. I just found being on call and dropping everything and running was not ideal. But yeah, I was a doula for about ten and a half years. I attended, I think my final number was like 103 or 104 births, and I'm also a Lamaze teacher, so I'm certainly in the birth world and advocate women trying to have the birth that they want. You know, an empowered, informed choice. Let me get this straight. You're blaming your children for this? <laughs> I'm blaming, yes. I'm blaming my children for not being a doula. Um, yeah, I guess I blame, you blame my later husband on. because he's the one that can't drop his job and run to my kids. No, yeah, my, I, my daughter, yeah, my daughter's a doula over in Sacramento. And so, yeah, I, I know this <laughs> that life very well. So, yeah. It's a hard but I think, I mean, if we're talking about things in general, I think having a doula for your labor is a great thing. And, and, and there's lots, and you know, there's studies that have shown that uh, much better pregnancy outcomes and labor and delivery outcomes with the, when there's a, 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 a birth companion or, you know, a trained birth companion, a doula. It's funny, at my own births, um, even you know, as a doula, my husband wanted us to have a doula because he didn't want me to be in that thinking mind. And I, I agree. I feel like having um, someone other than the care provider and the partner, having someone mm-hmm. that cannot be as emotionally involved, I think it's a great thing. And I was very proud to serve in that role for many years. Yeah, my, uh, you know, when I, when I had our, we had our kids back in ninety ninety one, doulas were not heard of where I was, and uh, and the whole thrust then was to have the dads be the partners. Well. I hate to indict my entire gender, but we don't have a patch of our brains grooved towards childbirth. We're basically, you know, the the fears, you look at the studies of men and the fears they have during labor is that either my beloved or my baby's going to die, one of the two, or am I going to faint? Am I going to look stupid? You know, I mean, it's, it's, we're better. And there's a reason they used to send them off to, you know, boil water and get sheets and (laughs) give us something to do. So, but, but the men have their own concerns they got to deal with or the partners. They shouldn't limit it to men. Uh, and I think that's why uh, somebody who's been down this path before who's a doula is a great way to go. Yeah, I, I definitely think when I was an active doula and I'd arrive at the births, I'd always say it was the partners that were more happy to see me, I think, than the moms. <laughs> because even though they knew you know, I'd be your support, all of a sudden the weight and the, the responsibility was taken off the partners. And they're like, great, I could just be the loved one to the mom in labor and Deb can try to you know, orchestrate everything else. I would have, I would have loved that just to be the back rubber and the handholder and that you know it didn't help that I was on call the night before and I was still sound asleep when I was supposed to be coaching. Yeah, I, wrote about, I think that I wrote about that, that probably didn't go over so well. Well, I want to put out. Thank you so much for speaking with me, and I want to put on our show notes how people can find your book, where they can find your information. So let's make sure that you and I coordinate. Um, so I've got your social media, uh, your book, which sounds wonderful. I actually, when I grabbed your bio, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I didn't read this and we could have had even more to talk about. It sounds like a great book. Um, is there any last minute thing you want to say? Um, you don't have to. <laughs> I think I've shot I think I've said everything. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Oh, thank you so much for your time. And I'll let you know when this comes out. And for our listeners, thanks for coming on this ride for us and talking about uh, basically everything that had to do with the umbilical cord. Um, I hope everyone learned a lot. And now you have some more information to talk to your care provider about. And always, if you enjoyed this, please go to uh, iTunes or Stitcher and rate and review us. And keep coming back and listening to more. All right, Mark. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great night. You're welcome, Deb. Thanks for inviting me. Right, take care. Bye. Bye.
This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.